Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesson. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Me too. I'm doing really well. I think that's the way to put it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So, so what, what, what do you have there? What's your new toy? I've got a Moog Theramini. Theramini. How, how many is many? It's, uh, it's kind of a beautiful spaceship-shaped thing. Uh, it's kind of... If you, if you took a... Uh, uh, okay. If you took a UFO, like a flying saucer, and you pulled on it to try to make it the sa- shape of a Subway sandwich, that's what you'd have. Okay. It's, it's, it's white. It's the beginning sort of level, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, Moog is one of the great names in synthesized music, and uh, they've got some really cool products. But this is a good start, and it's got 32 different voices to play with. Um, so it's really cool. <laughs> excellent. It's really cool. Excellent. Excellent. It's always fun to get new toys. I got a PlayStation five for uh, father's day. So I was pretty excited oh, great. about that. Yeah. Pretty cool graphics. I uh, got a couple of games that I've been, that I've been playing. I've been getting really into a few specific video games. Um, and I've been, I feel like I've been missing out because I've always turned my nose up at the video game as a as a genre for storytelling and that was to my detriment because there's some uh, there's some really cool stuff out there now the last video game i'd played before this was in 2002 with the playstation 2 and then it broke and i decided i was never gonna play video games again because i was gonna talk to girls and skateboard and that kind of thing which you know I could I could have done both I suppose but I <laughs> I, I just yeah you could have I just kind of I just kind of went for it but uh, how are things there in uh, in Vegas you doing all right you know I feel like it's all good I mean it's been really really hot but it's okay because it's summertime uh, and today is my birthday happy birthday to you thank you so much thank you so much I mean I think it's uh, you know, it's uh, it's been kind of just off the charts. My best and oldest friend, certainly my oldest friend, uh, Phil Abrams, who is a character actor in Hollywood. He's done a lot of interesting shows. But I've known him since uh, like age 16. And our life paths have been very, very different. But we've stayed in touch. And... Um, he really has just been a fantastic friend, and he brought the party. We did everything. We were out at Boulder City and Lake Mead photographing and taking videos. Uh, we went downtown to see what the situation was like. I haven't really done a downtown safari for a while. And uh, I I got to do some really cool video of these very dubious alleys, you know, where people, you know, shadows are lying under, you know, whatever, and the security lights are all blinking, and there's been a, a some sort of leakage, so there's actually puddle action, 
And uh, it's really great to have someone who will drive at exactly the right speed <laughs> to get good video <laughs> in really weird yeah, terrain, you yeah, know? Yeah. You want that in a friend, you know? Yeah. So it's been really great. And uh, I'm looking at his uh, I, filmography I, I here. Charged. He's been in a lot of, he's been in CSI and uh, looks like iCarly and just also Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. This is a real working actor it looks like he has about a dozen credits per year and uh oh that's interesting well that's fun that sounds like a good oh time. it was really fun and then we watched some just absolutely absurd pilot episodes from those iconic shows of of childhood you know i dream of genie and bewitched for us and to see it through adult eyes Mm-hmm. And all of these bizarre social subtexts on a lot of the hot button issues of today, sexuality, gender roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but watching Barbara Eden in I Dream a Genie, it was just like, wow, you yeah. know. So we, we did it all. We, we really and we, we laid down some tracks uh, we uh, used the vocoder with all the different voices, and and I've yeah I've got some cool toys and some simple instruments too. I've got a little sort of metallophone. Uh, I got a kalimba, uh, thumb piano, mm-hmm. and I've got my my metal tongue drum, and my keyboard, and also a MIDI controller. So I, I'm going multimedia, David. I'm going musical. Uh, I'm. I'm. Nothing. I'm going to stop writing at all. I've got. I've got. I've got a really big novel to finish. Mm-hmm. But it's just fun to have some treats, you know. As of you course. said, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. You know. It's just every not, once yeah. in a new, while. New toys, you know? man. New toys are the way to go. You know, it's funny. You were talking about how watching entertainment from even ten years ago, uh, you suddenly see all of the quote-unquote problematic elements with the movies. I watched a French film from two thousand and one called The Brotherhood of the Wolf. And uh, it's about it's set in 1764 and it's got uh, it's in France. And these two guys go to a small town to investigate a series of werewolf killings. And one guy is a white guy and the other guy is an Iroquois from Canada uh, who came back on the boat with him. And as you're watching this, it's like, you know, the Iroquois guy is he's in touch with nature he tells people what their spirit totems are. He paints his face. Uh, he does all these things that, you know, I'm watching uh, and thinking, this is really cool. You know what I mean? I think that a kind of modern sort of maybe woke take on this would be that it was, you know, culturally insensitive or cringy or whatever. And I'm just a white guy. So who knows what I think? But I was watching uh, this character in this movie and I was like, this is pretty badass, man. This is cool. Just wouldn't fly today, I think. Well, that's it. You know, I know exactly what you mean, and I think our listeners do too. It's uh, it's hard for me not to be really sort of disappointed when I have that thought because I think the the kind of work that we're excluding really covers a huge spectrum in terms of quality, and I think there was some important things that. Uh, you know, just might not be seen today or, or either, either not published or, or not turned into, you know, a TV or film uh, production. I, I find that very, 
Well, it's it's interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's it's it, that's the the best thing I think you can say is just that. Well, it's worth some thought if if this is really how we want to go because it seems to touch on. I mean, we we've spoken about cultural amnesia and and things just slipping through the cracks and people getting lazier and lazier and believing that everything is remembered by some giant database because Google makes it so accessible. And, and there is truth to that, but we know also that, that uh, memory is slipping away from people on an individual psychic level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I shared uh, at some point uh, some colleagues who are really interesting social scientists. They're, they managed to get funding to, to really look into some very complex issues. But they were, they're very concerned about memory loss. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing this in, in people who are younger and younger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you can't just dismiss it because people are living longer, you know. No, no, no. Uh, and I went around the corner to what is the most prestigious, expensive, exclusive memory clinic. That's how they build themselves uh, in my area in, in Southern Nevada. And I have to tell you, I was shocked how many people young, much younger than I am, you know, maybe not as young as you, but, but mm-hmm. uncomfortably in their forties, yeah. let's say. Right. And, and, and that's a real problem. But anyway, the, the, this, uh, these friends of mine are husband and wife team, and they arranged to have a kind of vacation home that was uh, equipped with video and audio equipment. And all of the participants, the testees, they all knew what was going on. There was no, uh, the bathrooms were obviously not uh, set up and they were only there for, you know, two or three days. So, and it was quite luxury accommodation, you know, a really nice Mm -hmm. Airbnb of a very high quality. But it, it was effectively like the Big Brother television shows. And they get gourmet food and they do have privacy in the bathrooms and they have privacy after a certain time in the bedrooms. So it's not that invasive and everybody consented to it and knew exactly what was going on. But the deal was that at set points during their stay, which I think is a a long weekend, let's say, uh, they were asked to record exactly what they were thinking, doing where they thought they were in the, you know, in the house, uh, you know, a real little journal note with some detail. Well, when they were confronted with the video, audio, and combined uh, evidence of what they were doing or where they were, they were all 100% wrong. Wow. Their level of accuracy was pathetic. Mm-hmm. And this is in a confined setting or certainly defined setting and these are not old people, uh, and these there's not that many places to go. But it just shows, I think that, and as we get more and more forensic in the testing, this kind of survey, this kind of investigation, I think we're going to find that people have no idea what they're doing, mm-hmm. and it's not just like what did you have for dinner three nights ago? Uh uh-uh. uh, it's like what were you thinking of fifteen minutes ago? Yeah. Where were you actually standing? Yeah. You know. Well, let it, me it, hold on. I, I got a pop quiz for you then. What yep. What were you doing today at 
let's say 3 p.m. So so four hours ago for you. Okay, well, it's kind of easy to do because it's my birthday. And there did have to be a plan because of uh, what was going on. So I know I was having lunch and I know where and I I know with whom. Uh, But I think the point taken, I think that this is exactly the point. And so we're we're in a very weird phase when people are talking about revisionist history. Mm. Uh, I mean... If you really can't remember what you were doing only a few minutes ago, or certainly even hours, uh, what it, you know? What sort of sense of history are you bringing? You know, it's a right. very strange uh, conundrum for me. I, I just I feel very uncomfortable, and I think that I mean uh, you haven't done really like super historical fiction, but in your first novel, which is a Russian gulag. I mean, you you had to have done some really mm-hmm. uh, focused research on that, mm-hmm. and you must have been struck by kind of a mysterious uh, experience of vicarious knowledge intake in the research that maybe triggers some you know sensory well in imaginative you know people and in writers I think this comes you know kind of naturally it's one of the prerequisite skills, but. I wonder how many people really have any sense at all of how different things were not that long ago. And I'm thinking of lights at night. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of mm-hmm. different noises. Uh, I'm thinking of ambient noise. I mean, those are kind of really, they're so basic, we, we just let them slip on by. I mean, ambient noise is almost by definition what we ignore. Right. Or, or aren't aware of. And yet, uh, I mean, once I, I went back to uh, the university I was teaching at UNLV here, and I went back at night because I'd forgotten about my bag, and I, I knew that no one had been in that classroom. And I went back and I got it, and as I came out, it was a, kind of a warm spring night. I was just astounded by the sheer sounds of the ventilation system and the building sort of things. It was just, it was it was incredible. If that was ambient noise, you know, my God. And this woman was walking past and I'm just sitting on a bench and, and she hears it too. You know, it's all quiet at night generally. And the strip is, only, is not very far away. You'd think that would be really noisy. But this building, just the ambient noise yeah. And I think that's such a great metaphor for uh, the directions and, and issues that we're taking up in our second behind the paywall segment, uh, because it has all to do with these signals that are reaching us. The, the broadcast idea, what we're talking about in terms of the ghost radio uh, signal and what that means in our definition of culture. But, uh, yeah, I mean... There's just so many things that we are taking for granted. And I think that memory and the construction of a cultural past, but also of our own personal past, you know, mm-hmm. um, you're facing that in it from a different perspective now with the arrival of this new baby Gus. Absolutely. You know? um, some, of his, uh, some of his life, 
in terms of an inherited memory or what will feel like that to him in you know a few years time is being constructed without really uh i mean he, he there's nothing he can do about it you yeah, know right right exactly um i'm thinking about the quietest places that i've ever been and everything that comes to mind my dad was in the military so when i was a kid we moved around a lot but we always went to church and there were several churches one in oklahoma one in kentucky and one in germany uh that come to mind immediately and the hallways of churches uh sunday afternoon after people have left are intensely quiet very yes. l- very lush carpeting uh very pil- very pillowy feeling to the carpet normally but quiet as a tomb and that's the first thing that comes to mind is uh is churches well that's interesting because i i certainly think you know outside moments of you know making a joyful noise mm-hmm. uh and the musical traditions um all of which are, are either very rousing or, or, or fundamentally meditative. But I, I think that the, the idea of sanctuary, and that's only one part of, of a church in architectural terms, but the idea of sanctuary and associating that peace with quiet. I mean, peace and quiet, I think that's an interesting equation that we make. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because we really mean sort of the absence of violence and the absence of a sense of static chaos, uh, you know, background noise. In a sense, it's almost pure signal or uh, trying to get no signal in a sense, Mm -hmm. uh, but no background noise either. It's kind of amazing. I I think a lot of people have that church experience. It's kind of amazing that we have um, sensory deprivation tanks which are basically in today's age of noise and and mess. It's basically, uh, hey, come hang out in an extremely quiet and dark place and just relax. And I've heard stories of people freaking out because they hear their thoughts, their actual thoughts for the first time. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and I don't necessarily want to get too far off what we want to talk about, but it's been on my mind lately. I've been thinking a lot about emotions as being addictions that we don't even realize that we're, that we're getting. I'm beginning to reach, and you don't have to worry about me any more than you already do, but, uh, (laughs) but I'm beginning to reach almost Philip K. Dick levels of paranoia when it comes to the emotions that I feel on a day-to-day basis because, you know, you have to think about it in terms of, you know, what did I just eat? You know, what kind of process stuff was in there? How is that affecting the brain chemistry? What it's, it's so such an interesting synchronicity to me that you brought up um, ambient noise because I was literally thinking about this this afternoon because I was, uh, it's been raining here. I don't know if you can hear it, but it's actually raining right now. Oh, nice. But uh, I was listening to the rain, but then I was also noticing the hum of the refrigerator, and I was noticing uh, my dog scratching herself in a corner. 
and I was just thinking like we have all these auditory inputs, all these smell inputs that we don't, our olfactory senses are so dulled. A lot of people don't even know what a smell even is, right? Let alone how to identify the different fragrances in a, you know, all the different notes in a perfume or something like that. But most people don't even know what they're smelling unless it's feces or flowers, right? Um, anyway, yeah. anyway, long story short, I was thinking about all this stuff that was kind of coming in and how much of that is man-made and artificial. And I started to wonder, you know, when I get, <clears throat> you know, upset or even happy, any spectrum of emotion that I have, how much of that is being dictated by my surroundings and by the phone that I look at. And I started mm. to feel very uh, watched, <laughs> very watched. Well, you know, I think there's a good reason for that. Uh, and you then you have to uh, reflect on, on your definition of paranoia. Technically speaking, of course, paranoia really is just... Uh, too much focus on on oneself you know it's 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 more of a uh, a solipsism uh than uh oh, than the yeah. than the the connotative meaning of fear of persecution or you know someone's out to get you or i mean and i i love that definition of paranoia because i think it's it's always hilarious in other people i really enjoy reading mm -hmm. uh about people's paranoia. I like, but that's one of Philip K. Dick's great achievements. I think Kafka does it so well. I mean, I just, Thomas David Pynchon. Lynch is a filmmaker. Yeah, and I, I just think it's fantastic, you know, because it, it's just a relief from my own uh, paranoia. I mean, and, and here, I'll just throw in a little example, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I went out one morning, it was a bright, clear morning. You know, it's always somehow a bright, clear morning for me. Those it weird things don't happen on gloomy, rainy days. They don't. And even when I'm they out, don't. they don't. They, they don't. They happen. literally don't. I get a little anxious when it's sunny and there's that crisp morning smell in the air. I, something's going to happen. That's what I'm talking about. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And I think what what unfolded, what I'm about to sort of say was purely a, a, a hyper-aware response to the atmospheric conditions that you just described that were coming in at such a level of detail that I couldn't process them directly. So I transferred that focal energy to, in this case, my windshield mm -hmm. of my parked car. Well, there was a flyer under the windshield wiper. Well, that's not unusual. Uh, I mean, it could be for a new dentist or a pizza delivery thing, right? You know? Sure. Well, no. No, this was a special workshop for people who are depressed. Mm. And there was something about the font of this that, that really did get me depressed. It had a kind of you know, real seriousness to it that just, I thought, oh dear. And I looked around and I thought, well, wait a minute. Why doesn't any other car have one of these flyers? Ah. You know, why mine? Why only mine? And so I got a little bit, you know, freaked out. 
Uh, it sounds stupid, but I was. So I walked around the whole condo community. I did not see one other flyer. Oh so God. I was the only person. And, I, and then I started thinking, wait a minute. Has somebody been observing me or uh, have they been watching me without me knowing yeah. about it? And, and, and But what's even weirder, though, is that the conclusion that they've drawn. And by the time I got into that little cul-de-sac, I mean, I was seriously paranoid. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe not, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not worth thinking about. Or maybe it is. Maybe that's that's where that's where stories come from. That's where stories come in. Well, I think that for me, that's where good art comes in. Where I I realize that that what really connects with me in almost any medium is something that makes me just absolutely puzzled. I I just don't know what to think. Yeah. You know? David Lynch tells a story of his boyhood when he uh, was out in one of these idyllic 1950s neighborhoods that he goes back to so often. Yes. And he, uh, he tells the story, him and his friend are out riding their bicycles and they stop at the edge of the woods. And he says he sees a a woman uh, stark naked. And it was the first naked woman he'd ever seen in his life. And he said that she was ghostly pale, milky white. And she walked out and looked at them and then walked back into the woods. And man, if that's not the image metaphorically or literally that he's been chasing in his in every movie he's ever made, I don't I don't really know what is. But there's always I think that's well said. I think that that's the iconic mystery moment that echoes and reflects and shadows itself all the way through his career. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. you know, when you think about it, like, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think everyone has a set of motifs in various, you know, kind of, of musical motifs, design motifs, story motifs, visual symbolic motifs. There are certain things that just catch on to you. And there's they must sort of happen all you know in a pretty early stage you know mm-hmm. i think that you know not infancy but uh pre-teenage i think a lot of the the, the important mm-hmm. you know symbolic associative patterns that that formulate the thoughts you can have i mean this is the other another thing that we've talked about behind uh in our paywall segment of the history of language and and the dependence of humanity upon language, capital L, and that you really have certain deep structures of possible thought Mm -hmm. that are predetermined by the nature of language, even though we may not understand the mysteries behind that, and we may never, you know? But it's somehow, we just don't, like going to go back to the video gaming thing, it's like we don't have that access to that level of the game. Right. You know? Right. Right. And we probably, as we are now, without any horrifying cognitive upgrades that some people, I think, would be first in line to get, uh, we probably never will. Because I do think we're... Pl- it's... um, Who who was it? 
who said that we're like cats in a library. Is that Henry James? I was it one of the Jameses? I can't remember. Uh, it, it, you know, it could be Henry James. I mean, I, I don't, I don't. That doesn't strike me with William, but it could be. Yeah. What? How do you interpret that? Uh, what do you interpret that to mean? Oh, so cats in a library essentially is you know the the cat has made its home in a library and it knows the best places to nap and it knows where its food comes from, but it's right. surround, okay, surrounded by these books. Uh, it doesn't have the first clue what the books even are, let alone yes. I mean, the, the, what the words on the on the pages inside of them mean. And so the idea that we're all like cats in a library is just one step up from that. Well, uh, I have a message for our listeners. What what we'll do is is find the answer to that because I think I, I'm not sure who who thought of that. That that is a really beautiful beautiful metaphor on many levels. So we'll research that and provide the answer in our uh, Patreon segment. Ah, That's another reason go. to subscribe. There we go. We're going <laughs> to every, David every and I mystery. Do follow these yeah, up. Every every mystery that we that we uh, uncover or, or uh, begin investigating in the free ones, we will solve in the paywall ones. That's how we get you. That's how we pull. Yeah, and, and it, it it is also what we you know what we promised of of. Some topics which we're really improvising around in real time, we know that they're worth quite a bit more discussion, analysis, dissection, etc. And we're not saying you know anything differently. We know they deserve that, and so it's only natural to try to to do that. You know, mm-hmm. and you your choice other than that is to either avoid topics of any kind of mm-hmm. interest, which is making a profound uh, judgment, which goes back to uh, one of our most popular um, episodes about the idea, the concept of the frame, Hmm. uh, particularly in terms of of categories, conceptual categories, um, more so than than physical, literal, tangible framing right. although you know it, that that's very important too that that decision about what is important mm-hmm. is is such a radical notion you yeah. know yeah um, especially with the finite nature of everything i know who said it now i googled it um but we'll hold off on that then yeah um, we'll hold off on that but, I, I think that's a good policy yeah and and we hope that that people don't feel teased by that um I do. But it, it's, I hope it's you the way to, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the way to fulfill the promise, and and you, you can't do all the investigating and stuff, uh, and, and still keep pace with things as they just appear. You know. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, we touched briefly there on childhood last episode. We mentioned that uh, in this episode we were going to talk about what's called the invention of childhood. Um, that sounds very interesting to me would you like to give us a kind of a a starting point there okay i I was thinking of um i don't have the book with me it's part of my library that i had to leave behind in the southern hemisphere but it's quite a beautiful uh it's a coffee table sized book uh, about nostalgia in popular culture and in marketing and the history of it Mm -hmm. um and the illustrative examples are just simply fantastic from every medium you can imagine. 
from uh, postcards and uh, you know gift coupon kinds of things all the way up to some great film stills and book covers and on and on and on. But the text is, is very interesting. And I, it, the, the premise is that America, more than any other uh, nation, certainly even more than any other English-speaking nation, has made a kind of cultural artifact of nostalgia. And it's expandable. It, 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 it is transgenerational in, in, in concept. But this book shows how it really was a response mm -hmm. to the uh, the generation that would have been from childhood to uh, pre-adulthood, but you know maybe five to eighteen, let's say, mm -hmm. who went through the depression and really saw it, who really experienced it, and then were still young enough to sort of get caught up in. Uh, the, the confusion of, of World War II. And oftentimes, uh, you know, pretty average working class people, but not, uh, well, certainly, certainly people who were formerly employed before the Depression. So this impact of social event creates a mindset that is individual, but is cultural, which is a kind of really dreamy, nostalgic, idealistic, fantasy world. And I think it's worth saying that it's, it's pretty much a fantasy world of, of white people. Mm. And that that has some sort of profound link to how we began to view childhood. Uh, the, the, the distinction between how we were viewing children, let's look at some, some real main years of, say, 1850, 1880, uh, 19, well, World War I, and then from the 20s on. And then we hit the late 40s and 50s and something really changes, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and when television, you know, going back to our some of our advertising series, and this onslaught of, of message targeting children. So there's a lot to unpack here. And I think also there's the issue of the vulnerability of children. Uh, we have some real conflicts of, you know, sexualizing girls. At what age does that happen? We've got now gender fluidity sort of issues affecting younger and younger children. We've got a kind of, I mean, I think maybe very legitimate, but, but pretty obsessive fear of pedophilia, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on around it. And I think in the background, David, it, it struck me that uh, this links back to a very uh, important topic uh, from several episodes back where we were really looking at uh, the anthropological issue of initiation rights hmm. in, in, in indigenous cultures and how that held the whole community together and gave people a vector for their lives that we in the West maybe haven't felt for quite some time, you know? Right. That's interesting. So is the link then with the initiation rights, the idea that without a clear 
stopping point for childhood there's a kind of bleed that leads to nostalgia that leads to a bit of rose tinted glasses around the whole thing do you think that in a society where initiation rites are common it's a sort of compartmentalization exercise I think that's very well said, particularly the first part. I think that was really, really subtly stitched. Mm. Uh, and I, I, it's, it struck me as perfectly valid that, that it, it is exactly the, the link that I was thinking of, but, but articulated uh, very well. That yes, that the lack of uh, a kind of framework structure for a life mm-hmm. and which is not only uh, in temporal terms of moving an individual through the years, uh, it's also constantly dimensionally connected to the community, to not just the the family, but to the culture group, whether we narrowly define that as a language group or a little bit broader. But a hunter, you know, in in evolutionary terms, it would have been a hunter-gatherer group that defined itself uh, at a glance, defined itself in terms of language, history, and and direct blood relationships. So they knew who they were, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And without that framework, I, well, I suppose, and I hadn't really thought about this before, as much or as clearly as, but I think there's an interesting uh, possibility that we have within us the evolutionary memory of a certain kind of framework so that when we don't experience it in a developed nation sense, we, we maybe, maybe our nostalgia is, is quite legitimate. Mm. I hadn't really thought of it, that, that we're, we feel we're missing something because we have some kind of dim, ghostly memory of what things should be like mm. you know mm-hmm. there, there should be some uh, uh, yes. milestone okay. celebrations you yes. know there should be some recognition of change with between the individual and and the community i mean more and more we, we you know well aside of freud there is so much psychological literature on the the core problem if we look at sort of neurosis rather than really more, you know, schizophrenia, for instance, the core problem is it always links back to parental acknowledgement of a child's emergent sexuality, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. and, and you can extend that to the community idea of, I mean, how does anyone know they've grown up if people don't treat them differently? You know, right, um, right. This this resonates for my personal experience as an adult right now. I've often remarked that I'm 34 years old and I don't feel any different than I did when I was, you know, a teenager. Right. It's it's a kind of um, well, it goes both ways, actually, now that I think about it. So an interesting thing does happen uh, when you reach a certain age, people who are, you know, uh, 16 all the way up to their mid-20s they're this 
mass of creatures that are all the same to me. I can't really tell them apart anymore. Although I would have very much been able to tell them apart when I was either 16 or 25. Um, but the, the, the feeling that I'm trying to get at when I say something is that it, it felt like there was a point in time where uh, adulthood or manhood was supposed to kind of begin. And you're unceremoniously dumped into the world after high school uh, and you realize that high school doesn't ever really end. You're always in some kind of social structure like that. And eventually time sort of passes and you spend it drinking and doing drugs and hanging out with your friends. And if you're lucky having sex, but you know, ha. Um, but it does seem to me that there were other generations and you know, I'm not saying that I would have wanted to have been a part of this, right? But there is a difference in generations that perhaps had, uh, oh, I don't know, say a, a war, World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War, the Korean War. Um, those were these kind of trials that even if you maybe weren't a part of the actual fighting force, the ripple effects could be felt at home. And maybe the first thing that we've had in the digital age that compares to that is COVID over the past year or so, which is why people are, are so kind of shell-shocked about the whole thing. You know, I've noticed there are people who I know right now who are um, going through some very tough mental issues uh, surrounding phobias of enclosed spaces, other people, germs, things like that. Um, so all of that is to say that at least in my generation, I'm 30, I was born in 1986, at least in my generation, there was never a, a kind of a frame presented for what adulthood was supposed to be looking at. So you end up with a bunch of people my age who are still excited about toys. And yes, PlayStation 5s, but that's different because that's for mature adults. That's not a, that's not a, those aren't. <laughs> <laughs> rhetoric, rhetoric, rhetoric. <laughs> Uh, okay. uh, but am I am I am I off base here? I mean, uh, it does seem that there is a an obsession with people my age with toys that that my f uh, grandfather, for example, didn't have. Uh, well, I I dare say I dare say, um, but look, I I I have to pick up on something because it just reminded me of something that mm -hmm. that. Uh, well, we've talked about it uh, over the phone, uh, and we were kind of wondering where it would ever fit in. And you know, everything is always connected, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think it's found its place. Mm -hmm. And it, it was a mention that you made about um, a moment not that long ago uh, with hip hop uh, when you realized that. Uh, well, this is my paraphrase, okay? Sure. But you realize that you you just didn't have to keep pace with <laughs> pop music yeah. anymore, yeah. right? Okay, right. You, you just didn't have to do that. And when you said that, that really, really resonated with me because for two reasons, because everything connects, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the first is I re I vividly had that experience. And I, I felt like I had carried the torch of 
love and engagement and dependence upon pop music long enough. Mm-hmm. And I was over, I was living overseas. I that you know, I was gone from America. And there was at that point, uh, Casey Kasem, the famous mm-hmm. DJ, was still alive. Then he would do American Top 40 as if we were still living in an AM, you know, Top 40 era. But he would, he would do it. But there would be, there were replays often, you know, and it was nostalgic. And it was a connection with America when I was safely 12,000 miles away. Uh, and then I remember I just didn't, I, I, could, I couldn't connect with it anymore. I wanted to leave it behind, actively leave it behind. Not regret it, not regret it at all, but, but it, it had stepped away. And here's the odd thing, because I think that we have, we had the exact same experiences. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I can't, I haven't heard anything in the way you've ever described that moment that doesn't immediately and fully resonate with me. But I had my experience the year you were born, 1986 it was. Hmm. And I think that's an interesting... That is interesting. You know, and I, I, I would extend that a little bit further and say, I don't think that people of as different generations as you and I are, are going to have as much connection ever again, right. ever. Right. Well, not even close. So he, it's really funny because there's an update to that story where it got even worse for me. Um, growing up, I idolized Kanye West. I really loved his albums. I thought, you know, he was a great producer. I still do. Right. The albums that I listened to at the time are still cherished albums for me. Um, and I loved hip hop and rap music uh, pretty exclusively uh, after high school up through sort of my late 20s. And I was very involved, uh, not personally, but I was a huge fan, I should say, of the underground hip hop scene. I would follow different rappers. I would go to shows. Some of the greatest concert experiences of my life were in dingy little dive bars with people packed in shoulder to shoulder to watch, uh, you know, a rapper who never really had a hit single, but I heard about them on the internet and I loved their, their tunes, you know, uh, I was in it, I was with it. And then I started getting into my late twenties and I started getting into ambient music. I listened to a lot of Brian Eno uh, a lot of mm-hmm. uh, Aphex Twin, um, especially the selected ambient works of Aphex Twin. And I would say probably a couple of years ago, I thought, you know, I haven't listened to hip hop or rap in a really long time. I'm going to see what's going on with rap these days, right? And I went to Pitchfork, the the premier website, uh, the tastemakers of modern music, right? And I found some of the <laughs> some of the albums that they had given an eight point, let's say eight point zero and above, and I went and listened to them, and I didn't get it at all. Right, I couldn't understand a word these kids were saying. By the way, they were they were kids, right? They're you know they're seventeen and eighteen years old. I have no idea what they're talking about. The beats all sounded like trash to me, and I could remember. I could remember talking about Kanye West and 
people who were just before me who had been big fans of you know Tupac and and Biggie Smalls were like you know well most of them liked Kanye okay but there was this kind of divide right but I felt that divide so much and now I was the old man who didn't like I was listening to uh the baby and I'm, I'm just like yeah what the hell is this you know what's going on and then it got worse because then I thought okay I was really into underground hip hop right so maybe there's some stuff going on in the underground world that will be more my speed and uh <laughs> quite the opposite right so i found these kids who are 16 17 years old and they're just making music that sounds completely blown out just fuzzed out where you can barely hear the voices uh, it's almost a white noise sound like static um and it's just you know violent it's just this assault of sounds and i'm like well you can't dance to this you can't you can't even hear what's going on it's like yeah okay great oh, so check us out ready for the rocking chair so this yes. is what's this is what's so funny so of course i still listen to hip-hop music because a lot of the artists who i listen to are still making music but chris they're in their they're in their 30s in their 40s now you know uh same as me so they're they're old men they're not they're not touring they're not they're not selling the records that they used to they're just kind of making them and putting them up on spotify and if i i know that if i were to tell a kid right now what i listen to it would have been like if somebody told me that they were really into barry manilow or something when i was younger i would have been like oh okay that's cool no idea what's going on with that or uh you know michael bolton or something oh my god i'm 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 kind of amazed that you know who michael bolton that that makes me worry about you all the more Dave. <laughs> but i i have a couple of 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 things uh that i noticed it's interesting when you're talking about the enjoyment of the underground scene and a certain kind of club that every well, I think a lot of us can imagine. I mean, I I'm thinking of like people shooting up in the in the in the bathrooms and the whole sort of uh, industrial uh, kind of messed up environments that were really fantastic, oh, though, particularly to hear you know the the cutting edge music of us of the time. And when you think back on that. I mean, that, that same kind of uh, venue, atmospheric, cultural buzz of, of kind of the forbidden and the trash, the punk, whole bunch of grunt. There's always been words for it. Uh, but it, it really extends way back through jazz, you know, all the way to, you know, the speakeasies and ragtime and barrel houses you know, and, you know, knife houses, the, they were so dangerous, you know. It, it, it's the whole real history of, of popular music, which has a lot of violence, a lot of risk, sex, you know, a lot of forbidden stuff that we've been struggling to manage as a culture, you know, in some sort of psychologically hygienic way. And we really, we haven't found that yet, but... Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's some really amazing stuff going on there. But I, I wonder, 
I wonder, uh, because I think this is a, another one of these transgenerational things where the kind of buzz that you describe, the, the psychological payoff for you is exactly the way I would have described certain, you know, things that at, at when I was, you know, that age looking around. I think a lot of people would. It would cut across all these different music forms and styles. Um, and I think that's interesting. And I wonder if that will hold true for the future. Because when I spoke to my students, a lot of them had never seen really live music. I mean, they'd seen like, you know, like street corner performers, buskers, you know, mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe, you know, a few steps up, but not like big concerts or, or even like a, like a really a, like rough nightclub scene that we're kind of talking about. Yeah. They just hadn't been part of that world. Um, for a lot like clubs and dance means really electronic dance music you know with yeah. some influence of of rap depending on who the dj is or who the talent is you mm -hmm, know mm -hmm. um but it's not like people playing instruments i hate i mean if if you thought you just sounded old that really makes me sound old it's like Oh, yeah, man. I remember when people played live instruments, you know. Yeah, yeah, instead of That's how instead old of I am. just like a bunch of Moogs, right? Um, but the last gasp of my clubbing experience, well, there were two. One of them was in Seoul. Rios and I lived in Seoul for about a month. Well, I guess that's an extended vacation. We had an extended vacation in Seoul, and every weekend we would go to the gay district, right? So there were two big hills um, and one of them was called Hooker Hill and one of them was called Homo Hill and one of them had <laughs> prostitutes and one of them had gay dudes, right? And Rios has always liked going to gay clubs because she doesn't have to worry about being hit on by all the guys there. That's the, that's a little trick, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, a I lot of women feel that way, I think. Yeah, I remember uh, sitting in a dive bar in Seoul with those urinal troughs with ice in them um, and sitting there drinking a very expensive beer and having a Korean man with muscle implants, silicone muscle implants, who called himself Beyonce, uh, sitting on my lap and asking me uh, if I liked men or women. And I said, women. And he said, oh, good, I can be a woman today. So that was that was my that was one of the last gasps. The other one. This is funny. I was in London. And we decided to go out to a club and I had purchased, this is embarrassing to even admit, I had purchased anti-hangover pills uh, that were, it's like a herbal supplement to keep me from having too much of a hangover because we were doing some fun stuff the next day. We were going to the Tate to see the William Blake collection, which was amazing, by the way. Oh, um, yeah, for us. Um, and I showed up there and the bouncer... Uh, took my they they searched us and he found these pills and of course what does he think you know uh, well, what are these and I said oh they're for uh, they're for my hangover <laughs> and he looked at see. me and he looked at me you know and he said he said well just don't drink that much then in it and uh, I said yeah fair enough good point you can toss them so he just he just tossed them but I felt so old at that point 
And you never really got to try the hangover pills. Correct. Did you? I didn't. So you really don't. So, well, there are some interesting medications that like you can pick up at Hong Kong markets that you think, oh my God, look, I I just can't, you know, they're little vials. And you think, well, even that size, that amount, like I'm worried about, like what is in this stuff? What's going on? And they're always like these dragons that seem to be mating yeah. on the little, you know, outside <laughs> the paper boxes. You know? It's all Spanish and fly. It's all Spanish fly. It, well, you, you just have no idea. But there are, I mean, this is like the, the placebo power of imagination and will, right? I, I have known people who like will seriously swear by these little vials straight from the Hong Kong markets that it, they will solve everything. If you have diarrhea and you're traveling, it'll be better than Lomatil, way better. If you've got dysentery, well, it'll somehow cure that. If you, you know, whatever it is, and you just think, I, no, I mean, yeah. no. Yeah, if you got crabs, I, just I, pour I, it right on the crabs. It'll be fine. Yeah. It, it'll kill them yeah. immediately. And it says, it's like, wait, if it's killing the crabs, why would I drink it? And they're like, don't think about it too much. Just, Just drink the vial and you'll be fine. You'll, you'll, you'll feel good. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, well, yeah. Go, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I, I think somehow we're, we are, I, I know pe- some people are going along. How are they going to get back to the invention of childhood that they seem to have wandered off topic? They, sh- they uh, certainly did. This is a, this is yeah. a long, we, we say this every episode, but I feel like it bears repeating. This is a long form project and we, we kind of come back to stuff as we do. Well, and I can bring it around very quickly. I, oh, I, I think that I think that one of the curious things about childhood is that it, it appears to be a very straightforward word, but when you think about it a little bit, it's a it's a good example of a word that moves across what Gilbert Riles called categories, because we think of childhood as a period in our own lives, which for anyone who's not a child has passed. And that's a very strange situation, isn't it? I mean, where did it go? To what extent can it be talked about as still being alive today? I mean, that's a very, very heavy philosophical question just there. Mm. But then there's the the issue, which I think that is a little bit of a, a foothold for us for next time. And it's something that I think everyone can relate to is that Childhood, in the, in the sense of being constructed, is about really a popular culture. It's, it's, it's a shared connection yeah. with popular culture, and it defines generational and, and tribal groups ever more uh, micro uh, precisely all the time which is in itself interesting. Why are we getting the idea of micro-generations? I mean, this is something that's talked about in, in the mainstream media, and I, I, I see it absolutely as true. Uh, some of my students have referred to their siblings who are like two or three years younger, okay, only two or three years, as if they're an entirely different species. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just, I find that amazing. So that's one thing I think that we should try to pick up next time. The other thing which is, uh, and, and I have gotten some feedback from, from listeners, 
that they they would like us from time to time to connect the kinds of issues that we're interested in in terms of a new approach to anthropology and integration of some kind of idea of animus magic with science, the mysteries of language, some of these you know core themes of ours, they would like us to connect that to uh, commercialism and okay. the economy and the, the capitalist footprint that the ideas need to make in order to be discussable at all. Yeah. And I think that's a really fair point, you know, that yeah. Um, yeah. if it doesn't have some kind of commercial foothold and footprint, well, we kind of, it's kind of invisible, isn't it? And I think that's a fair point that we will take that on. Uh, and I think this is particularly uh, apt given the theme of childhood because so much of the issues are about marketing to children the onslaught that we've seen beginning in the 50s but hitting really like with star wars and harry potter and on and on and on you know and, and back to your teenage mutant ninja turtles david yes, you know yes. from an earlier episode mm -hmm. um and in that case what was an, what was uh even if I, I don't know if we explicitly said this, but it was certainly very much tacitly there that the interesting opposition, because one of our other ongoing things is trying to really break down or at least critique binary oppositions, not just accept them. But the, the one that we came up with uh, in, in, in terms of the turtles in your personal psychological pantheon was the contrast between commercialism and innocence you know mm -hmm. and i mean it just that connects me just saying you know about the blake uh exhibit you know songs of innocence i have you know? a, i have a beautiful and, copy of that that i bought in the gift shop uh sitting out on my coffee table right now it's great it's orange it's got this gold gilt font on it uh it's fantastic sorry go ahead well, it's, you know, it's interesting because the, the other uh, clue to the nature of innocence that Blake gives us is, is his opposition of, of songs of experience, Correct. you know? Yep. So we've, we've got an interesting, uh, well, it's sort of like a, a really weird hypnotic wheel, you know, those kinds of wheel for, you know, the spiral thing that uh, my dad had a bunch of those because he was really into hypnosis with his clients. Um, and I have a very funny uh, story to tell about him at some point. Um, but we've got this sense of innocence and magic in childhood. We've got a cultural mood or maybe disorder called nostalgia, which we'll define further, but I think everyone understands what that means. And then the whole idea of an unlimited childhood because of a lack of initiation frameworks and how this turns this wheel around and around and as it spirals and spirals and becomes more and more hypnotic. And so we become, in a sense, more dependent upon nostalgia and the commercial implications of that excellent though that, that sounds like a perfect place to go next time um for the next segment of this 
we are going to pick up our discussion that we started last time in the Patreon area. You can go to patreon.com slash no country podcast and sign up. It's eight bucks a month. There's a extra hour of this every every week. And uh, it's a bit of a different track. So we're sort of on two tracks here. Obviously, the first one is a bit more informal. And the second one is a bit more formal. But Chris, do you want to tell them what we're going to talk about next time? Or I'm sorry, on the next segment, rather? Yeah, coming up. Well, we're we're investigating uh, the notion and the concept of characters across all media that you can think of. Uh, story characters, characters in movies, and uh, you know performance arts, but looking at them in, in psychological terms, and and what does that mean in terms of cultural psychology? We're we're positing that this is a, a vehicle for exploring culture as an animating force, which informs and enfolds humanity and effectively defines humanity Mm -hmm. Uh, and characters and imaginary beings creatures that don't exist why do we all know what a unicorn looks like or a leprechaun Uh, think of all of of the personified or at least figurative ideas that exist that pointedly do not exist Mm-hmm. Uh, Borges has written about this, the Book of Imaginary Beings. Philosophers uh, have talked about this. We have a very, very strange imaginative landscape, which we are all embedded in within. It, it, it's some kind of amazing ecosystem that we really, really haven't explored. Uh, it's like you know some lost maps that have whole sections unmarked. So that's what we're kind of doing, uh, and it, it is a big adventure. But I, we're, we're we definitely have uh, well, we have the the confidence of our convictions, if not the courage. Yes, I like that confidence. You know, courage is uh, you know, it's a it's a it's in limited supply. You know, you got to use your courage sparingly, otherwise you'll run out. That's of right. It's a lot like will. But uh, every everyone uh, out there, thank you very much for listening. We will be back for the Patreon subscribers in just a moment. Uh, but we do hope that you'll go listen, folks. Chris, yeah, play us out. <laughs> play us out, man. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon listeners. We're so glad to have you here. This is the No Country Bonus Extended Hour. My name is still J. David Osborne, and that is still Chris Sacknessum. Chris, are you still playing with your toys? Can, can you actually, that reminds me so much of an 80s movie trailer sound. Can you do that one more time for me? I, I can. Try something out. I can, and I think that's well said. In a world 
where robots have taken over. And then, you know, cut to somebody screaming, no! And Arnold Schwarzenegger blowing someone's head off, right? That's it. <laughs> One man will take them on. His yes. name, Chris Sacknesum. Yes. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm just so excited. I, I'm going, uh, well, quasi-musical, uh, but certainly mm-hmm. multimedia. Uh, today's my birthday, so hence some new toys. Uh, some interesting, I've got a new metallophone uh, for that very sort of, you know, precise kind of gamelan percussion sound. Uh, mm-hmm. And also kind of a toy uh, sound and a lost carnival sound there. Then I've got uh, an African kalimba, which is a thumb piano, which uh, I'm gonna, I have a tuning hammer for it, which is a beautiful shape. It's just a gorgeous, mm-hmm. gorgeous piece of sculpture unto itself. But yeah, mm-hmm. the the uh, the prongs are, are so uh, tense and so rigid mm-hmm. that I'm going to have to break it in. But it's fun to have new toys. I've got a, a vocorder which uh, has some really great vocal possibilities. So lots of excitement. Uh, coming up fantastic speaking of uh tuning and all that i was looking at tuning forks while we were taking our break i think i'm going to get some so that i can adjust my vibes which i know you believe in and i believe in as well i think that people dismiss these things too quickly as woo woo or unscientific but vibes are a real thing in in life and i think that as we talked about on the free episode, there's so much noise, so much static going on there. I think we can all use some cleansing frequencies, right? Whether it's placed against your chest to regulate the heart or up to your ear to clear out your brain. We got to we got to get on this vibe train, dude. I'm all about the vibes right now. Well, there are so many things that are important to remember about this, but one key thing is that frequencies is is going to be one of the, the big thematic ideas of this episode and is certainly going to lead mm-hmm. us forward because we are talking about a paradigm of understanding the relationship between the individual and culture in terms of a crystal radio approach and we'll continue to define and expand and explain that. The pirate radio strategy approach possibility and we'll continue to uh, elucidate that hopefully a bit further and finally the ghost radio signal which is what we're really trying to track down we're equating that with the idea of culture with a capital C that is some sort of either an animating force a kind of energy field or an ecosystem Uh, We frankly don't have a final verdict on that metaphor decision yet because it's kind of complicated. It's a little complicated. We are making headway. We do appreciate your listenership, and we particularly appreciate hearing feedback, comments, more questions. Uh, I found in my journal, one of my journals, when I was really intense every day really pumping something out 
And I came across a, a simple line. There are some people who have simply never been asked certain questions. And I was thinking about the, the beauty of the interview as an art form, and, but also how good interviews, uh, which are good to read later and you know, in a larger audience sense, but are satisfying for both the, the, the parties in, in real time, seem to me to be based on the idea of an unplanned energy exchange that creates a kind of ceremonial resonance. Uh, and certain things get said in a, in a good interview that, that might not ever come out. You know, it's a triggering of thought. And yeah. so I, I think that's really important uh, to remember that, that frequencies and that kind of resonance is something that we're going to uh, spend you know more time on so um paris review is always great about that oh i, I always love reading those paris reviews interviews even with authors i don't read i'll just read their paris review interview i i second that completely I, and what's astounding about that from an editorial publishing point of view is that well not only do you have an immense range of of subjects very, very different individuals. They do a great job in, in who they connect with um, across the whole series. But ev the interviews are not the same person. There's a whole bunch of different people involved in that, and yet somehow there's a kind of beautifully consistent level of quality and depth, you know, and depth of field in terms of mm -hmm. what, what, what gets said. I, I find that an amazing... Uh, publishing achievement that anybody who, who doesn't have the whole collection should really think about it if they can afford it because there's just they're tremendous and tremendously entertaining don't you think oh absolutely they were podcasts before podcasts yeah and they yeah. had the benefit of being edited you know so i think that there are many podcasts not including this fine show that could really do with a little bit of editing. I don't know how many podcasts you listen to, Chris, but there's a lot of uh, having an author on that I really want to hear what they have to say, and they spend the first you know, 15, 20 minutes just being like, what did you have for lunch this morning? And it's like, oh, this could all be cut out. This I, I tend to put podcasts on at 2x, sometimes 3x speed, just to get to the meat, you know? I'm listening for the meat. What, what you just said just reminded... I have not thought of this in many years, uh, but I have to share it because I've, now i thought of it. Uh, toward the end of his life, Robert Penn Warren, famous for all the king's men, but, but really as a poet, really more than anything, he wrote a beautiful short story called Blackberry Winter, one of my favorite short stories. Uh, but he was really enjoying enormous popularity as a poet. Um, I, I think he read at one of the, I think Jimmy Carter's uh, inauguration. Uh, so he was really, really hot. And he came to my college. And, you know, he was a really tall, really just a kind of unforgettable looking dude, you know. Mm -hmm. And this nervous uh, sort of dweebish uh assistant professor desperate to impress probably had already taught at three or four different college you know just throwing out lines to grab a hold of an academic career 
Well, he proceeds to introduce Robert Penn Warren by reading like five, six, seven pages of awards and achievements across a very long life of letters. And there wasn't a single person in the audience who needed to hear any of that. That was no, the whole point. No. And right. it goes on and on and on. It becomes a kind of performance unto itself. Mm-hmm. And then, just thankfully, it's over. And all eyes turn to Robert Penn Warren, who has, and it's no reflection on his age. This isn't an ageist comment. It's a, it's a wise comment. He'd fallen asleep. <laughs> he just thought, the hell with it. This is really boring. And he just <laughs> nodded out. And I thought, oh, yes, nice. that was fantastic. And he, he, you know, when he came, you know, he came to pretty quickly and came to is kind of the right way to put it, I think. Uh, he had no apologies, you know. He thought, well, you know, it was about me and I got bored, so I fell asleep, you know. Very yeah, funny. Yeah. Sorry for that's the segue, great. but I just No, I, that's I just fantastic. That. No, that's a great story. But on that note, what are we going to talk about in the bonus segment? Okay, today? well, we, we've, we, we talked last time about uh, the idea and concept of character and characters across all media, really. Uh, they're a very, very strange category of the mind. Uh, there is such a vast array of them. I mean, we spoke about the, the, the peculiar conflict of dealing with, say, Bugs Bunny or Wile E. Coyote as characters up against, say, Macbeth or King Lear. You know, there's kind of a, a dissonance there, uh, or certainly a distance anyway. So we know from the start that character is an enormously flexible idea. And we questioned whether in, say, a Gilbert Ryle's category sense, if, if there was too much fluidity in the idea of character as a psychic entity uh, to really be useful. And we ended up saying, well, let's explore it further. The other aspect, which I thought was really interesting and very important and physically just uh, very understandable, is the notion of... of character its other meaning as uh, a symbol a symbol mm-hmm. say originally pre- you know pressed into a, a clay tablet a kind of cipher or hieroglyph you know mm-hmm. and that's yeah. a very interesting resonance so we've got a very complicated sense of character in terms of some kind of psychic entity personification in some way even if it's an animal or a robot or whatever something that resonates with us that we can acknowledge reality uh, and identify with in in a peculiar way and and there's a lot to be said about that process then there's this notion of of characters hieroglyph and and that makes me think of you know in, in we 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 don't see it so much in in real life now although i think it's more of a problem than we realize of people not being able to read and write, and they would put yeah. their sign or symbol as their signature. And I think that's a fascinating uh, moment 
which lasted a long time, which we completely take for granted now until we run into it. Um, at one point, uh, I was living in a small country town in Australia, and the local slaughterhouse got bought up by an international consortium and closed down. And all of the workers, predominantly men, but of multi-generations, who had had that to count on, they suddenly had no jobs. And I volunteered mm -hmm. to help them do, you know, write letters and, 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 you know, try to get prepared for interviews and, you know, a lot of stuff that turned out to be, you know, liberal good intentions, but, but not really on the beat because 72% of them were functionally illiterate. And they had, you know, been able to live their lives in this country town with steady employment. And it's been a nice sort of camouflage for a very, very deep problem. So mm -hmm. what, what I think that we're saying is that we, we wanted to look at characters as one aspect of this vast ecosystem of imaginary creatures or, or creatures of the imagination, creatures and ideas that we would have to say are imagination, you know, imagination at work. Yeah. Imagination yeah. interacting with something bigger. And so we, we, we selected the, the category of character to begin with. And we looked at that from a couple of points of view. But I think the starting point, uh, maybe with this episode, David, is to tie into an idea of yours that I thought was really lovely uh, and that really gets uh, missed. You know, we, we, mm -hmm. we often talk about uh, the problems of stereotyping people. And we hear so much about that we kind of just switch off. It's so boring. But what we were talking about last episode was, was really the, the more uh, high, noble, beautiful, mythological idea of archetypes. Uh, Jung's idea of that and how that permeates uh, our cultural notion. Big mythic figures, grand figures, mysterious figures, mischievous figures, uh, the coyote trickster type of figure. But David's point uh, in last week's episode was that archetypes are not only entities of the grand mythological, religious, spiritual adventure of culture. They're, they're people that we know in real life, or that's how we frame them, that we use the archetypal frame actually in our walking around, going to the convenience store, feeding the baby, talking with neighbors way. So mm -hmm. I think that was a that that's a kind of a very big idea because it brings archetypes into another frame and and we are all about sort of adjusting frames, looking at frames as a concept and how frames or a, a kind of an assumed idea of a frame in in any category sets up expectations of what we can perceive and what we can't perceive. So we want to break that apart. So David, why don't you think about expanding on that idea? And I wonder if you, if you could share, if it would be in any way comfortable to share a, a, maybe an example from your own life and, and community of, of an archetype that you maybe see every day or every week. Oh, absolutely. Um, I could go a few different directions with this. So I live near a mental hospital, 
Um, so one archetype that comes to mind immediately, this is from the tarot, but uh, the, the fool perhaps is, a, is an archetype that I see quite often. It goes back to, I believe, our second or third episode of a man standing in the middle of the street letting me know that he was in the street. Yes. Right? It's a, a kind of childlike wonder with the world. The Fool is the very first of the major arcana. We can get more into the tarot later, obviously. But it um, it repre- it's, it's usually somebody with a blindfold on who is sort of moving through life in a very curious but carefree type of way. And as Chris and I have talked about on earlier episodes, uh, of course, not to put too romantic of a tint on mental illness, but in a lot of ways, when things are going well and maybe people have a bit of meds in their system, I can see a lot of that, of the positive side of perhaps the fool archetype, right? Um, The other archetype that comes to mind uh, immediately is... I'm not sure what exactly the official capital letter designation of this would be, but it's the it's the person who's going to work, right? That that kind of spirit of needing to uh, pay the bills and to be a part of culture with a, a lower and a capital C, actually. So those two, co- and then there's also, of course, there's people. There's the people at work. There's the um, there's the the neighbor archetype. There's the a, a salesman came to my door today, right? So there's that kind of wandering salesman. Am I am I on on target here with what we're trying to look I, for? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's kind of your call of how you uh, yeah who you see filling these roles or inhabiting these right. parts. But I, I mean, I think what you're sketching out is is something, yeah. And it, it's an interesting way to see what could otherwise be dismissed as the ordinary. I mean, think about what a what an, just an insane judgment that idea is. You know, mm-hmm. the ordinary. Mm-hmm. We don't want to have yeah. anything ordinary happen here, do we? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it, it it it's very very interesting. So. I mean, where I mean, one of the techniques we're trying to use across our investigative process is a kind of uh, aggressive dialectic that's that either breaks apart binary oppositions or uh, dissolves them and kind of, in an alchemical sense, you know, synthesizes something else. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's you know where we want to be on on on, on the topic we were just you know right. we were just talking about absolutely right right and so I think maybe a good way of looking at this that might bring it down to earth. Do you ever have you ever spoken to somebody and you can tell that they're reciting something that they've heard in a movie or on TV or like on the news the night before? It's it's semi water cooler talk. I tend to think that a lot of sports talk is like this uh, because I don't think that everybody seems to have the the same opinion on Tom Brady, you know. And you can just tell they've been watching ESPN Sports Center. Well, at that point, those people are inhabited not by an archetype, but by a kind of meme or idea, right? And I think what we're suggesting is that. In a similar fashion, 
these archetypes don't necessarily come from television or radio or the internet, but they influence people all the same, right? So we're, we're getting to a kind of interesting question then about what a real, like who is the person underneath all of this that's saying these kind of things. And that might be for another episode. But what I'm suggesting is that when you're in a mode, when you're driving to work and your brain turns off, and before you know it, you've arrived at work. That's actually a kind of hypnosis, which is which is also interesting. You go into a, a complete blackout phase where you're just not paying any attention and you're thinking about something else, but you're performing actions almost as though you've you have taken a backseat to something that's bringing you to work. That might be getting close to this idea of being inhabited by by archetypes you know uh drunkenness perhaps compulsiveness different disorders but also certain orders the urge to have things maybe stacked in a certain way it's this never-ending sort of pantheon of spirits and gods that i think is beginning to get closer to how we as you know pre-agricultural pre-quote unquote civilization people would have would have thought about the world you know they wouldn't have necessarily have said he was angry but rather he was sort of possessed by anger with a capital a right right well i think that's absolutely uh, uh, you know <laughs> what the point of view is, and I, thought, from my perspective, that seems like a very valid point of view. I think if that's one of those things, if the more you peel that apart and accept it on its own terms, and I mean the deeper worldview that 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 idea is an expression of, the more you would come to terms with. I think what we're angling for in terms of defining animist magic of, of how that might work from a technologicalized uh, Western perspective. Um, but there are a couple of things that, that what you're saying that, that, that brought to mind. I think it's time to roll out one of the, the, the a word that, that we'll use more and more, and it's an important concept of oscillation. Oscillation. I love that. I love that word. My my buddy Eric's uh, art gallery that's less than a mile down the road is called Oscillator. It, it's great. It's a beautiful, beautiful dynamic, and I think the fact that it's fundamentally dynamic uh, in terms of energy exchange, or you could see it as a, as a constant you know relationship. There's something very cool about that. That's not static. It's not an artifact. Uh, it, it's alive. It's certainly energized. But one of the ways to think about the, the, the notion of culture with a capital C that David and I are investigating and, and, and putting forward as something distinct from our lowercase c cultures is that it is an oscillation constantly between mm-hmm. the individual self and psyche and lowercase c cultures. And that is what is under the, the, the umbrella of, of 
culture with a capital C. It's this oscillating yeah. dynamic process that really changes the nature of, of anthropology and, and all cultural studies when you think about it. Because the, the other model is either top down or bottom up. Lots of individuals hopefully, you know, will create a group, will create a tribe, will create, create it up. And you get these, this taxonomy of hierarchies that eventually arises at some sort of prestige of social, military, and economic status and, and may even be called a civilization, you know. Yeah. Or... With a capital C even. You know, then you have, f from another psychological point of view and another moral point of view, you and, and biological, it's a, it's a really nice insidious nest of, of reasoning that the individual only exists today by virtue of civilization, lowercase c, cultures, that the individual really can't exist and isn't meaningful uh, without that larger frame. And I, I, I have to say personally, I, I think that there's, you know, that's a very tempting uh, point of view. But David and I are convinced that we can break through that impasse, that dilemma, to some other new open terrain. Uh, but I think there's a couple of interesting things about. Uh, where I first really got on to uh, oscillation uh, as a larger idea than just the word, you know, I understood what the word meant, but it was Norbert Wiener or Wiener, uh, the, one of the really pioneering minds in terms of cybernetics, information, science. And he said something that just, I'm not really sure of the physics at all of what he really means technically, but I just love the sound of it. He said that the oscillating frequency of one system can affect and completely change the oscillating frequency of another system. Yes. You know, and of course there's yep. a whole lot of explanations, you know, technically engineering stuff that he goes into that he's quite capable of. But just think about that for a moment as a model of like falling in love or... Yeah a business negotiation or uh, that deep and meaningful conversation with an old friend. I mean, it's a beautiful uh, engineer's view of, of the dynamics of oscillation between people at a pretty intense psychic level through the yeah. medium of language. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's ripples in a pond and you are alternately the water and the pebbles at different periods of time it's a it's a great metaphor and way of thinking about how all of this works i love that a lot because yeah it just it feels like things bouncing off of each other and not even not even trading roles so much as quantumly inhabiting all roles until the moment they need to inhabit only one. Uh, oh, well it's said. Fan, it's fan, it's fantastic. Well, it's a, it's, you, you know, I'm glad you brought it up, man. It's that, that is just such a cool way of thinking about animism and 
the kind of archetypal thinking that we're talking about on this episode. Well, you know, one of the things that I think to give listeners a handle to our intent, and it's both an intent and and a kind of strategy, and, and sometimes we're more aware of it and consciously directing the strategy than others, but I think it's an underlying uh, vector, an underlying momentum, an underlying searchlight, is the the idea of, of rather than just picking up any kind of static idea or physical artifact and accepting it as essentially a noun, Dave and I are, are, are just putting forward a a basic methodology of considering it as a verb, considering it as part of a dynamic process and therefore related and interconnected with other elements, which then raises the question, how are we phrase, you know, framing anything as a single element? Is that the right way to look? Can we change our style of vision? Can we, instead of seeing uh, done deals and static, completed, finished, noun, tangibles. Could we deal with a little less tangibility and get a mm-hmm. little bit more dynamism? Mm-hmm. And I think we're we're willing to take that risk. We think that's yeah, yeah that's the way to go. And I, I, we're, we're 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 kind of we're sort of deftly sidestepping Zeno's arrow. Every every when we're doing this right, you know, because we're we're not breaking things down into their constituent points to the part where you to the point where you don't get anywhere, you know. We're taking things in as, like you said, systems. Another word that I'm fond of using on this podcast is the Deleuzian becoming idea. Yes, uh, that that Deleuze and and Guattari, but Deleuze mostly uses. Um, the, the rhizomatic structure of things, the mushroom structure, the mycelial structure of interlinked consciousnesses and cultures with a lowercase c. Um, man, oscillating is such a great word, Chris. That is, that's, that's fantastic. That clicks a lot of things into place for me, honestly, because I've been thinking about this since last week, and I, I really... I have an image of it now in my head that's that's really kind of kind of working. And it also initially I was conceiving of culture with a capital C and I, I think that this is is kind of the way that we were conceiving of it, right? As a as a as a being, right? A hyperstitional being that, that sort of um, works through people. And that's true, but what oscillation brings into it is that that's just that's just one becoming of this idea, right? It's right. it's a it's a back and forth frequency, dare I say. It's a it's it's a it's an it's a matter of can we say vibes? Well, <laughs> Maybe. I, I think we have you know I, I think that we need to flip that around, and and I I generally feel this way about wherever the word metaphysics comes up and someone has a problem with it. I just kind of think, well, yeah, you really do have a problem, you know, because it's not going away. <laughs> and, yeah. But I think that um, what you're you're saying is that vibes are 
valid. And I would go just that step further and, and you know, there's that wonderful line in uh, the Corpus Hermeticum, which I think I've mentioned, and uh, people get hung up on, on, the, on, the, on the word God, but it's simply, what could be more manifest than God? And mm-hmm. I, I just love the, the, the rhetorical power of that because it just like cuts out anyone's arguments like, you know, okay, well, you, you, just, don't, you just don't get it, you know? And right. I, I think that's the kind of thing with, with vibes. For me, I mean, I think that there are so many people for whom it, it's so, it's not even obvious, it's so fundamental to life. That there's just no question, and and think about this. You know, this ties in with your idea of, of archetypes being around us in the flesh. Think how when you feel like you've connected with someone, or when you know you've just met them, and suddenly there's there's an unaccountable level of rapport. You know, you simply can't explain it. It's just happening on another level of intuition and uh, resonance, you know? Frequencies mm-hmm. are resonating. And I, I, I suspect that, that I mean, you, you'd have run into someone who is just naturally accepting of the idea of vibes and, and all of the metaphysics that are involved in that. You know, there's just, mm-hmm. you don't have to explain to them. They're, they go, yeah, you know? Um, right. But right. here's the thing that, that, that I, I do think that we want to uh, get to before we move into uh, any further sort of discussion of the tarot and, and what's going on there. I definitely want to get to that. Um, but one point is that in uh, earlier uh, episodes in our, our, the part of our Free to Air series, we've talked about the cultural anthropologist Edward T. Hall. And he was a very, very interesting person. He's a contemporary of McLuhan and Buckminster Fuller. He was good friends and colleagues with both. Uh, very, very interesting thinker who, who had a lot to say about how different uh, cultures, in, with lowercase c, how they re- construct different versions of, say, space, personal space, social space, time. Uh, very interesting guy. But one of the things that he worked with, uh, he, he, he was uh, in collaboration with uh, a, an ultra slow motion forensic photographer using uh, cameras and video film equipment. And they really, really dug down on an extreme visual level how groups interacted and they found tremendous, tangible, measurable evidence for how people physically, paralinguistically, tune into each other. How there are actual frequencies that can be seen. In the same way, I mean, they kind of you know gave a, a visualization. You know, you watch a dog race around a park and you see what yeah. you know you think well that dog's taking in a lot of information that's not available to me well that's kind of what hall and his collaborator revealed about the reality of vibes and tuning in that those you know expressions are not simply metaphors 
in a kind of cliched sense. They're metaphors in a George Lakoff sense of being fundamentally concrete and absolutely descriptive uh, in a very one-to-one sort of way, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, vibes are real and, and people are tuning in. And on that note, I mean, I, I think that I'd like to put forward a definition of character that oscillates between the gigantic, heroic, or ridiculous, or evil, or scary figures from the world of mythology and literature, and also that other side that we talked about of kind of uh, an almost symbol, you know, a sigil, uh, something pressed or written, uh, you know, maybe drawn in blood, you know, or pressed into uh, a clay tablet, papyrus you know so those are that the oscillating between those two i'd like to say that that a possible definition of what we mean by a character that is inclusive enough to deal with bugs bunny and Macbeth is that it is a frequency oscillation between individual psyche and culture, capital C, which is standing in for our larger, mysterious element, yet to be completely defined, but the ghost radio signal. So culture like with a it. capital C is, a, is our bridge to the ghost radio signal, which we're, we're leaving uh, undefined in the sense that, like a map with an unexplored yeah. part of terrain. Yeah. You know, that's the yeah. visual analog. But what do you think about that? So I, I, I want to instantly you know, follow up with this idea of ours of, of turning static thinking into dynamic thinking. So a character now is a process, is a dynamic oscillation. There, there we go. Okay, yes, yes. Sorry, continue. I got Does that back. work for me? I mean, I, I, I think that's a starting point. I don't know if that has enough precision for people who are now thinking about the contrast between Bugs Bunny or the, you know, the Geico Gecko and Romeo and Juliet or, you know, uh, Madame Bovary, you know, I mean, who knows? Uh, That character is so flexible, as we said last time. It is, yeah. I I wanted to get some kind of frame on it, but, but to not lose the dynamic energy. So... Something in that works. I mean, we're obviously, in order for a character to stand out for us, it's got to be resonating with our psychic experience in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, absolutely. The word process is what did it for me. Um, it makes complete sense because it is a sort of interfacing avatar um, between, like you said, between an individual and culture with a capital C, which is, in my understanding of this, is coming through the ghost radio, is is, is a part of the ghost radio? It's the expression of it, yes. The yes. expression of it, okay, right. The expression of it that, but not the, the ex- expression of it is a good way to think of it, right, because it's not the totality, right? It's, it's, it's just an expression. No, I wouldn't say it is the totality, although, you know, not really having a clear model 
But no, no, it's definitely not the totality. No, no definitely now, not. Yeah. You, you said that well. I liked how you you did not uh, just flutter the accelerator on that. You, you you had your foot clearly off the accelerator and and <laughs> said what you said what you wanted to say and no more. So yes, it's not the totality, right? Okay, excellent. So that completely works for me. And now I'm thinking, um, if we're thinking about character in terms of a process between the individual and the culture that's coming through uh, the 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 ghost radio. So I guess that means that could could culture be something like like a like a political ideology as well? Is is that is that a character? Well, that's a really really interesting question. Uh... And in, in many ways, I think that's a much more complicated question than to sure. bridge the gap between, yeah. you know, Daffy Duck and Richard <laughs> yeah. III, you know? Sure, yeah, uh, no, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there's a lot going on with that. Um, Karl Marx is a character, though, so that, 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 that might work. Like, he's a, he's a, was a person, but is now a cartoon character. He's, he's somewhere in that continuum between Daffy Duck and Richard III? I think the, 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 however we end up twisting in a, in a topological mathematical sense the, the notion of character, we're always going to find some kind of shape that has a sentience to it that we can relate to. It, it, it's not a, a a pure personification, but it's something uh, that has a face, if you know what I mean. You know, it's something that, mm-hmm. that uh, and a lot of the energy surrounding, uh, say, a, a figure like Marx, we, we may have to lose that to background noise to, right. to focus him into a signal that is it's handy it's a handy reference point it's kind of a shorthand and i think it is a kind of a cipher um so we can recode we can upcode from him we, we but we have lost some information in the sense of signal but without that process i, I don't know if we could handle the the bigger uh signal system the signal ecosystem you know right right the vibes were telling me no uh as far as the as far as the political ideology goes and hearing you say what you just said and also kind of thinking about uh that in terms of 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 our definition yeah i i think that that's definitely something for another time but no that's that's great um archetypes fit into that for sure that those are definitely sort of like uh uh uber characters almost if you will right uh kind of manifest like they are they're closer to the source maybe of the of of the culture signal i i think you know there there's an interesting way to think of one of the most i mean i find the, the one of the most annoying suffixes in english but it's absolutely unavoidable and it's the ism thing you know mm-hmm. anything that has mm-hmm. an ism after it i i think is immediately suspect uh, yeah. on multiple levels, uh, and and that could be. I mean, it can pass 
I, I can think of some ones that could easily pass muster and I, I would support. Uh, but I think the, uh, it's unfortunate sounding, it's an unfortunate repeating thing, which media analytics could show you is just out of control and is one of those little fault line ideas, uh, trends that maybe says a great deal about the evolution or progress of the modern era. I mean, this is another one of our themes, isn't it? That it, it's the William James idea that no, never overlook something because it seems ordinary or, you know, not interesting. I mean, he could look at a squirrel, you know, circling a tree trunk and it raised all sorts of questions. And I think you could say that wherever there's an ism, uh, there's, there's a problem. <laughs> and Absolutely. that problem has a lot to do with our big problems, you know? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. By the way, to make sure that I fulfill my promise about who said the cats in the library quote, oh, it yeah. was... It was, in fact, William James. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, that's one of the reasons why we both uh, love him and so admire his thinking is that there's mm -hmm. so much, there's so much depth. I mean, for someone who really did not live long enough, he was immensely prolific. I think his personal bibliography uh, runs to 50 pages. I mean, he just, he was like Jung, he just, one of the great humanist fountains of, of wisdom and oftentimes very, you know, very low key. I mean, for someone who was so literate and, and so uh, erudite, I mean, he was able to really speak to many, many people in, in very uh, clear uh, physical language. So that, that's great. I, I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful uh, metaphor that we are cats in a library, that we're able to navigate on a kind of intuitive behaviorist level of, of, of kind of finding comfortable places, but having no idea really of what the larger context is or, or what any of, uh, any depth of detail at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so before we move on, because this is big, and I feel like, you know, remember last episode, we kind of put our toys out, all out on the floor. So before we move on, I want to really just nail down what we talked about for the past half hour or so. And so if this is repetition, um, and you're listening to this and thinking, all right, David, we're ready to keep it rolling. I'm doing this for me as much as you. Okay. Cause we're all, we're all finding this out together. Um, yeah. I think it's a good yeah. idea. Right. <laughs> so character, what unites Daffy Duck and Richard III is as a process between the individual and culture with a capital C, which is an element of what we are calling the ghost radio, which is a big part of our three-part radio system in which the crystal radio represents a sort of childlike interest in creation and figuring out how things work. Pirate radio represents community and using 
the tools available to you to collaborate and develop new ideas. And finally, the ghost radio, what we're talking about right now, which represents the mass of signal and noise that we are sort of trying to parse out with the aforementioned tools. Did I leave anything out there? No, I think that was very, very well alchemized. I think that that one of the key tools, just to make sure that it's very, very clear, is, is of course, language, uh, which is its own labyrinth of libraries and mysteries and puzzles, and is one of the underlying sort of themes that runs across our our, our radio metaphor. Um, Because it, it, it contains within it the paradox of the content and the intent content and intent so it is both its own medium and it's its message in McLuhan's terms and and that's not the same thing actually as he said where the medium is the message that's 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 a little bit different Uh, but it's it's content and intent and I think we often often forget that the latter you know Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah oh well certainly now in an age of social media you know intent has gone completely out the window i often joke that anything that i post on social media is going to be taken in the least favorable light uh by whoever whoever hears it or reads it i suppose so i'm satisfied with that i think that we nailed that down pretty well here i think that that delivers on the cliffhanger promise of you know the mess the glorious lot very fun mess that we made last episode so from here where do we go okay well i think it is worth pointing out and i really am just i just felt this these vibes and this wave very strongly over the last mm-hmm. few minutes and it brings together uh some a kind of mode and mood and uh, a vector that I've been dealing with for a kind of pleasant amount of time. But I think it's something that, that it connects uh, us both and is a kind of motivational force behind wanting to do this series. Um, and it really is about this idea of, of collaboration and community and sharing and it's so easy to cast those things in a kind of uh well a too easy sort of uh you know mushy sort of way and i don't think that's true at all and i I think it's entirely different than uh communication for the point of of prestige or communication for the point of uh you know, social uh, advancement. It's really a deep desire for that tuning that Edward T. Hall found. It's it's a kind of joyous, inherent need to share. And I think if we thought of that, of language, in those terms, mm. that is a positive way to then approach uh, some of the darker sides of, of language, of 
uh, of, of hide, hiding, concealing, lying. I mean, maybe, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but English as a major language has more words for cons and scams and uh, bamboozling and, you know, finagling stuff from people. All that kind of carny language of, uh, well, taking advantage of people. Sophistry, think about that going back to uh, the ancient Greeks and what that, the connotation of sophistry is not beautiful use of rhetoric and language. Uh, no, it's, it's deceptiveness. It's, it's trying to pull mm -hmm. the wool over someone's eyes. And I think if we look at that conflict that we, we have with language, that spectrum from a joyful participation and sharing and, and kind of lovemaking uh, to the fear, to the use and abuse of language, to, to weaponizing language, I, th I think we've sketched out uh, a kind of uh, diorama of archetypes and characters. Hmm. Aren't they just characters in that symbolic cipher sense of these different points on the spectrum? You know? Hmm. And I, hmm. I think we have some bridging agents. It's interesting that the trickster figure really does repeat. I mean, in human terms, it's about as universal as it comes. Uh, and it's it's hard to think of a culture that doesn't have that idea, you know? Um, so there's a vibe that can't be escaped from. It's 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 yeah. inevitable and unavoidable, you know? Yeah, yeah. And what, what complicates it is that none of these archetypes are are, are, are standing still on that dark light good evil spectrum either right everything's moving absolutely absolutely and perspective shift you know it's like holograms you walk around and, and it looks different you know Every, it, mm -hmm. it's all dynamic and yeah okay so as a segue then to uh because we did say we were going to talk about uh tarot and i know that you you've had a lot of experience with this so i there's I think we'll all learn something from this. I wonder then if we, if, and let's focus on tarot in, in not in its French and Italian, you know, et cetera, or Egyptian gaming. Because, uh, you know, it has been used as, as playing cards. You know, there's no question about that. But let's think sure. of it in its, its occult uh, divination uh, sense in its relationship, say to a work like the I Ching, you know that that kind mm -hmm. of process. Is it possible that this is some kind of uh, psychomagical machine, metaphorically, for dealing with the complexities of archetypes, and therefore? the intentions of language, the mood, the tone, you know, the good and evil yes. behind yes. it all. Well, 100%. What we were just talking about, that is the idea that these archetypes are moving around on a spectrum, that there is both a process that is the character itself and then processes within that that process a lot of shifting sand 
and the word that I love so much, oscillation, is, I think, in any good tarot reader's um, understanding of the cards, they are they're reading them in terms of the situation and who they're they are relating to, right? Um, there are different ideas of how you're supposed to read the cards. So I'm a big fan of a woman named Camelia Elias. Um, she does some great blog work and her style of reading tarot cards is extremely stoic and straightforward. You just, as she says, you just read the damn cards, read what's on them, which is almost Zen-like. Uh, in fact, she includes a lot of uh, Zen in her in her blogs as well. And then you have the tarot reader, and this goes from novice all the way up to expert, who have internalized and memorized the character descriptions of all the different major arcana and minor arcana, and they know exactly what it means. Well, you know, you got the six of wands, so that means that you're, I don't know, I honestly don't actually know what the official meaning of the six of wands is. But then, and I learned this from the Rune Soup course that I took, there is a style of reading called Taraj in Linea, which is the act of putting the spread down and really using your storytelling skills. So you internalize a lot of the kind of dictionary definitions of what the tarot cards mean, but then you're looking at the spread as though it is a, a process, right? As if it is archetypes interacting with each other. And remember from what we said earlier, archetypes are not always static. They don't always mean the same thing. The same way that you're not the same person when you talk to me as you are when you talk to your next door neighbor or to your friend Phil, neither are the cards, right? The, the, it's this whole point of, of interaction, right? So it, it 100% is a fantastic machine. I like the I like the word machine. I've I've heard it also put as a as an alien intelligence, which I like as well. It's a bit more organic, right? Uh for demonstrating what we've been talking about. Well, you know, it's very much what, you know, Jung said of the, of the I Ching, you know, why not consult an intelligent book? that's thousands of years old and you think uh -huh. yeah i i really don't have a good reason not to, not to be interested in that you know it, yeah. it's it's yeah. absolutely uh that i uh tell me um with the uh the reader that you mentioned she sounds very interesting i, I loved your description of of the the, the personal and idiosyncratic and it, it, it sounds like very decisive uh, mm -hmm. strategy mm -hmm. or approach you know I, I wonder um, how that does she have any interest or background in, in psychotherapy not that I know of she has background in Zen Buddhism and meditation and as far as I know of her and I've read many of her blogs they typically tend to deal with her, her present day life I don't really know what her background is besides the cards, but she's like the card 
madam, you know? She's the she's kind of this uh powerful tarot witch who uh has kind of a, a cool sort of almost gypsy air about her. She has this I'm not sure where she's from exactly, but when you hear her talk, she has this fantastic kind of uh sort of Eastern European sounding accent, right? And she's just everything that you would think a tarot madam would would kind of be like, would embody, you know? But she's extremely uh, ex- just extremely direct in in what she sees. She puts them down, and she has she has the story for you. I haven't yet received a personal reading from her. I think she's a, a bit. She might, she's probably if she's not pricey, she definitely should be. But I know she is. Um, but one day I would love to get a, a a consultation with her. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, you know it. The idea. There's a beautiful line of E.E. E. Cummings. Uh, I, I really, I still have a lot of time for E.E. E. Cummings as a poet. Uh, some of it, um, some of it, he, the, the typography thing got a little bit of a gimmick, but he did have a beautiful aphoristic sort of uh, inclination and and capability. But the line is, "It's always ourselves we find in the sea," and I think that that's really an interesting way to think of the whole process of divination i mean people would know probably that you know the the, the suffix for is you know mancy anything geomancy you know rhabdomancy you know all these mm-hmm. different and there's an enormous number of them it's like if you go to look up phobias and philias which yeah I, that's I, always fun oh right. it's fantastic well there are about that many different styles of divination and Mm -hmm. you know one of our our what i think is the most underrated human capability is is navigation uh i mean i i we wouldn't have the world if without that that's a very very mysterious thing and in I'll, i'll just moot now that in uh if not our next episode very soon uh, we're going to look at uh, an extension of the map reading navigational literal uh, technique of triangulation and how that moves to something that uh, I won't go further into it now, but I think it'll be really interesting. I, I'm working out the de- It's an idea that has been developing for some time, but it's an extension of that. But I think that the map and the terrain and some of those metaphors are, are very, very helpful in, in, this, in this complicated uh, search. But uh, yeah, uh, go I ahead, have sorry. a story about divination, a Fantastic. different kind of, of tarot reading. I, I, think that, um, I think for next time, I, I'd like to, to uh, there's some more to say, I think, about the symbolism and the particular archetypal uh, individuals or characters or uh, situations, you know, like uh, I would too. The tower, yeah, I would. You know, the yeah, wheel. no, the, yeah, right. The tower, the wheel, of fortune. Yeah, I would also love to do that. I'm really glad we did this episode first, though, because I'd like to sit and have a think with the archetypes in relation to what we just said. So it's it's really. You know everything in in its in its time. We 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 feel the vibes, man. We had to we, we had to vibe this one out first before we could really get into some of the 
meteor tarot stuff but um yeah that's that sounds like a great idea for next time but you know, yeah. I, I think we positioned you know why why we're even talking about tarot beyond the fact that it's cool uh mm-hmm. one of our ideas is is to not just look at at the phenomena and not just look at static objects but trying to understand the dynamic mechanisms that link them so what we're saying to to begin our our converse, our further discussion about tarot for next time is that tarot is is a kind of dynamic process or machine whereby human psyches can somehow navigate archetypal ecosystems uh, and I think that's kind of an interesting way to, to, to round that up. There's still, that still sounds a bit vague, but it's a starting point to look at the mechanics of that in more, more detail next time. But I, I think it is the idea of divination and, and, and seeing the future. Um, for people who enjoy Terence McKenna as much as David and I do, well, he's one of our definite, prominent pantheon members. Uh, he often uh, has a, an element in his lectures where he's trying to explain in fairly clear terms the shamanistic capability. What does that really mean? How does it work? And his answer is that the, for the shaman somehow a shift in consciousness and perspective occurs whereby time is either circumnavigated or transcended in a sense, but effectively the shaman is just looking at the cards as the tarot reader that David mentioned. That's her MO, that's her methodology. That, it's as clear to the shaman what's happening, you know, in the future uh, mm-hmm. as what's happening right now. So it's a revision of the idea of time so again, that connects back to, uh, to Edward T. Hall. But it's, it's interesting how we've broken completely away from the static notion of archetypes as kind of stock characters. Um, yes, yes. And I think that's vital because if, if anyone looks up the definition of stock characters, uh, coming from burlesque and, and, and the Comédie de l'Arte, it's a very reductive idea that just doesn't hold up at all, you know? And I think that we can stick with this idea of the importance of oscillation, of a dynamic energy exchange. That's what we're actually seeing and perceiving. It's not tangible objects. I mean, we know that doesn't even work in, in a basic physics sense. So it's not going to hold up in a metaphysics sense. So no. I think that's a good uh, layout of, of maybe where we would like to go next time. Um, but yeah, if we did want to hear a story, I have a story about uh, a psychologist friend of mine and why clairvoyant people are so damn annoying. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, this is a guy who I actually, I did uh, see briefly professionally. I, I, um, I didn't have any intentions for that. But uh, his wife got a gig in Denver that they couldn't turn down. And so they moved. 
and I, I Skype with him occasionally, but really just as a friend, as a friend. Um, but I, I, I very much enjoy his company, but he is damn frustrating because he truly is in the right profession. You know, mm -hmm. isn't that scary? Mm -hmm. I mean, you think, oh, everyone's kind of in the right place. No, they're not. They're, <laughs> they're most, most certainly not. You know, and, and it, it's to the point where the exception just so leaps out at you, 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 you can't. You can't ignore it. So we're, we're Skyping the other day, and, and he's, uh, he's curious too, which I have a problem resenting because I'm very curious, so I can't fault him. But uh, mm -hmm. So he throws out this casual line. He, he's also very clever, and he can lure you in very easily. And mm -hmm. uh, he just teased me with this line of, you know, just off the top of your head, what, what would, you know, what, what, what's your ideal woman in just general terms? Really, really quick. And uh, I fell for it. Without any thought at all, I just, you know, I did what I, did what I was told. And I said, ah, um, immensely competent, uh, pragmatic, handsy, handsy. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. And uh, very strong self-esteem. And I, I said it even quicker than that. And he goes, oh, you mean like an ICU nurse? And I thought, damn, when I worked in the hospital, I was really in love with a couple of nurses. They were fantastic. Why yeah. didn't I follow through? He goes, give me another one. And I thought, oh, he goes, he's making something different. And I said, okay, well, someone with some intellectual capability that kind of complements mine and isn't in competition and maybe has some kind of skills that I could benefit from. And he's, oh, like a, a really good librarian or a museum curator or maybe someone who's a specialist in, uh, you know, historic photos. And I said, look, you're getting a little bit frustrating here i mean are, are i'm not liking how this is good he said just give me one more uh, well okay gala likes the outdoors uh but it isn't doing it from an academic point of view exactly or and also not like a pure recreational sort of thing uh very physical uh loves nature and he goes oh like maybe she would work for like the bureau of land management and be keeping track of like a wildlife population in say Great Basin National Park. And I said, look, I'm not talking to you anymore. You're making it out like I've willfully sabotaged my entire romantic life and turned my back on obvious psychic resonances. And he said, oh, did I say that? Oh, so, what a, oh man, that what. Her, that's the mo right there. I, I didn't say anything. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I just, I just, I just made this bed. You slept in it. Right, yeah. right. So I think that has a lot to say about resonances and frequencies and yeah. oscillation. We, we've introduced some some important concepts that we will continue to develop. So don't think they're just going to disappear. I, I think we we know that they need to be. Uh, expanded upon and, and, and 
dissected and investigated and interrogated. Oh, we totally will, but we've cleaned up some of our toys. I will say that. We have. We have. That's a good way to put it. I and I so I could play I can introduce one of mine again. <laughs> That's metaphysical music for people who have any that's questions. Like a, that's like a Scooby-Doo ghost. Yeah, you know, and I remember the exact episode when it occurred to me that there weren't any real monsters in Scooby-Doo, that it was all these people putting on a costume. That was my yep. big revelation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because the real monster is our is man. That's indeed, the... it, indeed. Somewhere, <laughs> wherever you know, and this may be what we find when we you know track down the ghost radio signal. You know, we we may not be chasing a woozle here. Uh, we may be following something you know that really does have a source. The wow. call might be coming from inside the house. all right folks thanks so much for subscribing chris and i are eternally grateful we are getting close to a hundred dollars a month which is pretty damn exciting for our first month i'm stoked about it that is exciting and and more and more people are listening i'm getting uh not so much comments necessarily that we could you know use on the show which is totally fine nice things are always nice but i've been getting a lot of uh encouragement through email and direct message so really cool to hear that the that the podcast is landing for you guys so we will uh see you back here next week yeah join the ghostly jamboree thank you thank you all